Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bucker. This season of Food Lab Talk is all about the power of choice. Today's guest understands the nuances of our decision-making processes and, more specifically, the factors which influence them. I am so pleased to welcome Rafi Dar. Rafi is the George Rogers Clark Professor of Management and Marketing and the Director of the Center for Customer Insights at the Yale School of Management. He's an expert in behavior and branding who brings psychological insights to the study of consumer decision-making. Rafi's research investigates fundamental aspects about the formation of our choices and preferences. His four-piece framework for behavior change outlines evidence-based nudges that can help make healthy choices easier, aligning behaviors with intentions. These nudges fall into four broad categories, the four Ps. What choices are offered? Possibilities. How choices are made? Processes. How choices are communicated? Persuasion. And how intentions are reinforced? Person. The four Ps. With that, welcome to the show, Ravi. Happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Great to be here. It's going to be a, a great conversation about consumer choice. You are really an amazing person to talk with. You've been, if I'm correct, director at the Yale Center for Customer Insights for more than 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit more, what is it about consumer behavior that has kept your attention for so long? Well, it's a great question because one of the questions I often get is, how come you've been at Yale for 30 years and you haven't moved? <laughs> I think one of the things that the center does very well, which is a little bit different from pure research that I also do on consumer behavior is really, it started off with a very simple premise, which is how do you take a business challenge and you translate that into what I call a research challenge? What is a research question? Is there a deep research question here? When I say what a deep question is, means do we already know the answer in academia? If we do, then I just go to the company and say, hey, here's a whole bunch of research we already know here. And then, you know, consultants would call it best practice. We already know what's right to do. But oftentimes, what I find very interesting is most difficult questions um, that companies have almost always have an important research question under it. And for obvious reasons, if it wasn't there, they would have, somebody would have solved it by now. Not necessarily other academics, but other consultants who advise the companies. So oftentimes, I find it's actually not that hard to identify very interesting research questions in the business challenge. But it is, it is a work. You need to spend some time doing that. And then the more fun part is really how do you prioritize? So the 10 or 15 years at the Center for Customer Insights, we've been working in the area of healthcare, financial services, technology, and of course, consumer goods. And each one has its own questions. Some of them are evergreen questions. Some are new ones that keep coming up. So long answer to your short question. It's been very exciting and very fresh. And that's what keeps me going, you know? Yeah. I hope that our conversation today is actually leading to a research question. But let's first frame it up for this specific season. We're digging into enabling individuals to make informed, personally relevant food choices. And I, I think there are a number of really interesting elements in here. So it's informed. So what information do you need as a consumer to make a decision that is personally relevant for you? So I'm not even talking about over here what 
society or what you or what I might think is more relevant or better for you. It is really thinking about you have a specific desire and how can we help you to make that decision. But almost immediately, I think about this misperception that people truly get to consciously choose the alternative that they prefer. So for example, it's New Year, I have a New Year's resolution, I want to eat healthier and therefore I want to have a healthier choice for lunch. So on the one hand, it's almost like there's this personal agency and I can act upon that. But at the same time, it feels to me that there might be more at play. So to start with, what are your thoughts about ultimately personal choice and agency? Is that something that still really exists as it relates to food? Or is it ultimately a misperception? So what sounds like a simple question actually is quite complicated. (laughs) And I like to talk about, you know, we all talk about preferences in philosophy or even in psychology. There's a term that I've used in some of my academic papers, what I call meta-preferences. So meta-preferences are my preferences about my preferences. So imagine a smoker or imagine somebody who sometimes eats donuts for breakfast and sometimes eats something healthy. And similarly, a smoker doesn't smoke all the time. Sometimes they don't smoke and sometimes they do smoke. So economists would say, well, we don't want to get in the mumbo jumbo of what people like or dislike. Let's look at what they call revealed preferences. What did you end up doing? What people do versus what people say. So. What people do or what people choose, they said, is your true preferences. You know, whether it's you're acting impulsively, you lost self-control. We don't understand that. We don't fully know that. But all we know is that given that you did that, it gave you very high utility. So there's this distinction between what people do and what they say. And to me, going back to the meta-preferences idea, when we ask consumers, Okay, sometimes you smoke and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have the donut and sometimes you have a healthy fruit salad. Um, But tell me, do you prefer the occasions on which you choose the healthy fruit salad over a donut? Or do you prefer the occasions on which you chose the donut over the fruit salad? Or smokers, the same thing. So smokers would say that, yes, I do smoke sometimes more than I want to. I watch TV more than I want to. I surf on the net more than I want to. But on the occasions that I don't, I actually prefer that preferences over my other preferences. So this meta preference is an interesting idea. You can think of it as a little bit of a theoretical idea if you like. But to me, that gives you what my higher order preferences are. In other words, I have some preferences over my preferences. And I prefer when I save than when I spend. I prefer when I exercise versus when I don't. I prefer when I eat healthy versus I don't. So once we understand people's meta preferences, then the second part of your question arises. um, Well, why don't you act aligned with your meta preferences? So there's one thing to have what you prefer and your choices often don't reveal your preferences. And that's sort of your second question that I'm happy to get into if you like. Why does that happen in some ways? Yeah. I would love that because I think I can unpack that in two different ways. So the first one is I really want to eat healthier and what is getting in the way. And then the other hand is that whether it is the family or whether it's the employer, whoever that might be and say, I want to help you. What are the options for the other side on the supply side to help you to be in line with your meta preferences? So if you look at uh, 
in a lot of these choices, like healthy eating, and I would put saving money for retirement in that same bucket uh, or uh, exercising in the same bucket. And the bucket is the following. The cost of eating unhealthy happens a lot later. The benefit happens right away. If I eat the benefit, I, I enjoy the donut right away. And the benefit of that fruit salad, oh, after 30 years, you might live longer or you'll have less high blood pressure. So there's a decoupling between what we call cost and benefit. Same thing happens with savings. If I spend the money today on a vacation, I enjoy it right away. The benefit of saving that money in a retirement pot that when I retire at 65, if people retire at 65 anymore, it's probably more like 70. And that's when I get the benefit. So once you have a decoupling between the cost and benefit, the first thing to recognize is that immediate gratification kind of takes over because all the benefit of that sits back or healthy blood pressure or healthy heart, your heart is not going to get affected in the next, you know, eating one donut today. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that any one choice you make is actually not that bad. So eating that donut for breakfast today in isolation is not a problem. The problem is if you keep eating donut every breakfast, every day of the year. Similarly, we call this a drop in the bucket phenomena. Oh, let's have the dessert. Like, oh, I'm going to start, you know, eating healthy tomorrow. And so when you have a series of such choices where any single choice, healthy or unhealthy, is not that impactful, as lawyers would say, it's not as material to your overall health and happiness. It gets much easier to say, let's do something which gives me fun today because tomorrow I'm going to really exercise or tomorrow I'm going to really eat healthy. Second, any one single choice is not that material to your overall well-being. And the third thing that happens, and I think this happens a lot, that people are really not aware, to your point, Michael, earlier, what drives our choices. We think what drives our choices or other people's choices, it's about the individual. If I see Michael eating a big ice cream, I say, oh, Michael, he just doesn't have self-control. He's eating that big ice cream. And when I eat the ice cream myself, I attribute it not to my disposition, but to my situation. Oh, I just went to the gym. I really worked hard today and I deserve that ice cream. So we explain our own decisions based on what we call the context or the situation. And we attribute other people's decisions often to the person. In general, a lot of our research shows that context really drives our behavior. So in the morning, if I tell you I plan to eat healthy today in the, for dinner, which most people will tell you if we ask them, what do you plan to eat today for dinner? Well, uh, something healthy. They don't know what they're going to eat. By the time dinner rolls out, it's 6 o'clock, 6.30. They're tired. They worked all the time. Now they want to have something that can be made really quickly. So the context, when we answer that question, what do you want to eat for dinner? We are not thinking about the context because the context is not clear for dinner. I'm just giving you my meta preferences. Oh, I prefer myself when I eat something healthy. That's just fascinating. So with all your years of research, I am now a simple, straightforward consumer. And we're meeting at a reception and I'm asking you the question from Rafi. I really, really want to eat better this year. What is it that would enable me to eat better this year? Do you think it would be more information? Would you say, dude, it's all about more discipline or stay away from whatever that might be? 
But if you would say, I'm going to help you to make personally relevant, informed food choices for the next 30 days, where would you start with me? So I think this information uh, idea is very interesting, Ron, because it often comes up even when you ask consumers like, you know, so why did you do it? So what made you do why? So I was not, I, I wish I had more information. It sounds like an easy answer to give more information. But a lot of studies have said, what happens if you give people more information, right? So on calories, we actually had an experiment when many of the cities in the U.S., if you were running a certain chain with certain number of restaurants, you had to display the calorie information. So studies were done before this uh, you know, real event in the world to see what people said. If they had calorie information, what would they do? You know, Many people said, well, I would eat healthier. I would eat lower calories. I would take that into account. And of course, you ran lots of studies after that, but most of the studies, not all the studies, but many of the studies showed that the net impact on calorie consumed did not come down. And there were some people like me, as I often say, it actually went up because I used to have a bagel thinking it's very healthy compared to a croissant in a, in a coffee shop. But then I noticed that croissant has only 20 more calories than a bagel. And I said, oh, I really enjoy the croissant a lot more and it's only 20 more calories, you know? And so it had the reverse effect on some people like me. The answer is not that you should not be providing information. So let me elaborate a little bit of that, what the challenge is. The challenge is the following. And if I break it down, Michael, it really breaks down into three dimensions of information. Most of us focus on what you provide. And that I mentioned the periodic table. How do you simplify? You know, we've done some studies trying to simplifying how do you provide calorie information or carbon impact information. Simple is good. I mean, that's that's a dominant theme. But it's not only what you provide, but how you provide it. And then when you provide it is the biggest challenge, frankly. Because when you provide it, in many, many cases, it's provided at the moment of choice. Think about it in a supermarket. I'm working right now with a large company which is trying to change its packaging to be more sustainable. So first is, how do I inform the people, right? You know, do I write it on the package? Will people read it? Will the package look different? Will they think they're messed up with the taste or they've changed the ingredients? What seems like a very simple question very quickly became a lot more complicated. And then how much money am I going to spend on advertising the sustainability aspect of it, given that people don't seem to want to pay for it anyway, and I need to advertise my brand for other things, not on sustainability, so ultimately, if I do it in the store, most of us in a store are buying 30 items in half an hour when we go to a supermarket. How much are you reading? The back of the package, the front of the package, what's on the store aisles? So very quickly, it's very obvious, information, providing information doesn't work because of information overload and because of distraction. People are just, will not get their attention. So the how piece, what do I provide? How do I provide it? And when do I provide it? Yeah. So what I hear you tell me that we human beings are complicated creatures and that just giving us more information is not going to necessarily help us to make the stated preferences we would like to pursue. But if I can tie it into the work that you have been doing for quite a while is to think through with companies and with food service providers in ultimately either helping individuals to make better choices or to ultimately sell more of a product. I believe you've done actually quite a bit of work and you've created frameworks and I just happen to love 
frameworks. So I think one of your frameworks I'm aware of, and I'm not so sure if it's still your main one, is the 4P model. Could you speak a little bit about, ultimately, if you are a provider, if you are a food and beverage company and you're interested in selling more of your specific products, or if you are the food provider at Yale and you would like your students to eat more of either the healthier choices or the more carbon neutral choices, what does the 4P model do for you as a provider? So one thing it tells you is, how can I make it more fun to choose that option or give some little bit of immediate gratification? We said the healthy option often does not have the immediate gratification. Is there a way to make it more fun, if you like? Uh, when you make something more fun, people are more likely to do it. And I'm using the word fun in a very broad way. You know, For example, um, let me talk about healthy exercising and we can come back to that. So there's a study done by one of my colleagues uh, who showed that the difference between people who exercise and people who don't is not as much in how important exercising is to them. Even the people who don't exercise say it's actually important or being healthy is important. The difference is how much they enjoy doing it. The people who enjoy doing it, and the enjoyment can come from many ways. Some will say that the adrenaline, the rush, the dopamine rush you get from running. For some people, it could be listening to their podcast, like this one, while you're running or, or on a treadmill. And so the idea is any way that makes the task interesting to you, which oftentimes is not done, is it becomes much more um, likely to happen. So what is people's normal tendency? People's normal tendency is to emphasize how important it is to eat healthy. But I just told you, they already know that. Even the people who don't eat healthy say healthy eating is important, just as much as people who eat healthy. The difference is the people who don't eat healthy don't enjoy it. You know, So is there a way to make it more enjoyable? Is it how you mix it with certain things? You make certain colors. I remember uh, watching a TV, um, since I'm from India, I remember watching Anthony Bourdain when he was traveling and he was in India. And he's known as a very hardcore non-vegetarian. And he said, while he's eating this food in India, vegetarian food, he said, India is the only country in the world where I could be a vegetarian because it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of taste. So I think the first thing is, is there a way to make it make it more fun or interesting, if you like, um, which is different from the second point, which is making it easy. And that's what one of the P's we try to do a lot is, how do we make something easy? And this goes back to the bounded rationality idea that, the easy stuff just wins over the hard stuff. Let's just put it this way. So one of the nice versions of this would be if you go to a buffet, what do most of us do? Even after I have said this many times, I still do it. I pick up a plate and I start putting stuff in from the beginning. Very few of us would first walk up and down the buffet and see what's in everything and then start taking, right? It takes only two minutes to do that. But next time you go to the buffet, just Take a look. Does anybody do that? And to me, that's an example of bounded rationality. You know, how complicated is it to eat in a buffet? It's not. I've done it many times. So I just pick up the plate and I start putting stuff in. But when you start putting stuff in, the plate has limited surface area. It's going to get filled up. And so it gets filled up for better or worse by the stuff that was easy to put, the earlier stuff as an example. So making it easy is a huge one in some sense. 
sort of the make it easy part also gets into what we call the choice architecture. Like how do you arrange the set of options in the buffet example I gave you, the order in which you see the different items in a buffet, it's the same item. So it's the choice is the same. It's architected differently. So you change the architecture and that can have a big impact, which is suddenly people feel like, um, you know, the most famous effect, of course, here is for which Richard Taylor won the Nobel Prize around default in uh, savings. When your savings becomes a default choice, then people are much more likely to save. So as soon as I join Yale, and Yale is now on the default system, so as soon as you join Yale as a as a faculty member or the staff, Yale automatically takes away from your salary and puts into your savings, you know, 5% or whatever that number is, and then it adds a contribution. When I joined Yale, it was not like that. I had to make that choice. Do I want to opt in? And Yale changed that to opt out. So they basically changed the default. And that's another example of choice architecture where you change the default. Special of the day in restaurants are like that. The restaurant menu is just too big. And so most of us start with, what are your specials? It's just a way to simplify the choice. And that has a big impact on what we end up doing as well. And the third thing I would talk, which is a little harder, which is the idea of um, almost like cost of delaying. You know, don't put off eating healthy to next day or next year or next month, you know, which is what people often do. So basically highlight the cost of not starting to save as soon as you join the company, which many people do. So if you're 25 year old, you say, I'll start saving when I'm 30. Right now, I have to pay my bills. I have my college education. But we know from all the power of compounding and interest that the faster you save, the faster you'll reach your target. And so how do I highlight the cost of delaying? So conceptually, Michael, these are the three ways. But the cost of delaying, my own personal experience, is it's very hard to communicate that. So even if you do that, people still say, no, the immediate wins over the long term. Like, I don't have a long term if I don't have a short term. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think in our own world, choice architecture has provided with us so many insights and I think positive outcomes. What I think you hear quite often is while people become somewhat sensitive to, are you going to determine what I can and cannot do? And I think on our side, it will be, no, 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 all options are available we're actually very thoughtful of actually the sequencing, the choice architecture to help you from what we believe will be better for you, better choices. So totally agree with you that choice architecture, the fun components, making it easy, all these little things truly make a difference short as well as long-term. So Rafi, probably the biggest audience on this show are change makers working in food system. They're trying to affect change or make impact in food systems. I see you as a change maker through the lens of learning more about choice making or enabling choices to be made. So what is it that you wanna share with this audience about what you have learned on how to affect change over time? This is a great question. I think the biggest barrier, frankly, is very similar to the framework we use, which is not understanding the reasons for why the other side does what they do. So, you know, our tendency is to say, like, hey, why aren't you doing this? This is better for you. Don't you understand? Well, you have to look at what are their incentive systems? How are they doing things? What are their barriers? 
that creates obstruction and then apply some of the same principles there? How do you make it easy for them, right? I remember even when you talk to the chefs, you know, you ask chefs to do certain things. Hey, make it fun or make it this. I have my day job. I have to make the food at scale. Help me do some of these things more effectively. So I think the biggest thing I find in change management is really understanding what are their barriers. Perspective taking is really critical, and it's also really hard, right? We often don't see things from other person's viewpoint. I think my colleague, some of you know her, you know, Zohi Chance has this she has interesting example. I don't know where she's, uh, if it's her original, she's taken from somewhere. But somebody who's coming late to work all the time, one way of handling that is like, you know, hey, you have to be on time next time. You can't keep doing this. I don't care. But the other was the framing she said is quite effective is what can I do to make sure you come on time? So trying to understand like what are the barriers? So I think this whole change management is really hard because we don't tend to see things from what are the reasonable reasons why people do what they do? Reasonable reasons could include habit and inertia. So I'm not saying it has to be all very uh, financially driven, but there are many reasons why people do certain things. And if you don't understand that, it's going to be very hard to change their behavior. And then you have to apply some of the same principles. How do I make it easy for them? How do I make them recognize for that? Like, how do I make it fun so that they're being re- and so celebrating success and all that kind of things which companies have to do? I totally agree with you. And I think there is this notion of chefs like to get instant gratification from ultimately consumers of what they're producing. And they were fearful of if they would do something differently, that their consumers, their users would not be happy with them. And that therefore overcoming that fear or giving them cover was ultimately a barrier that we removed. So they became actually chefs that were creating delicious, nutritious balance plants for our dishes. But every time when you think you have the solution, the next challenge pops up that you have to overcome as well. So walking through the shoes of somebody else, I think is so true. And that brings me maybe into my final question. So you work in an academic environment. Any advice for the students you are actually supporting today in how they can become amazing change makers in food systems? What I find these days is that, and this is a broader question, uh, and we can get to the food system part, is really trying to have a deep understanding. And very quickly, I find people get into not understanding what the facts are and what the data looks like, and they jump very quickly to opinions or what I feel. And... My problem with that is I said, if that's what you feel and that's what I feel, we'll never, you know, it'll be very hard to address each other's feelings. Let's just start with what are the knowledge and what do we agree on? But I've noticed this more and more, and this is more around the polarizing issues. How do you, first of all, understand where the other person is coming from? What is the knowledge and what's an opinion, a belief in my language? What are people's beliefs around this, right? Getting the foundational thinking right behind this is very important between what's fact-based and what's feeling-based. And then deciding how do we address you know, these two things. And I tell the students, unless you understand that foundations, the feeling-based versus reason-based choices, you're going to be having a very hard time addressing it. Great thoughts, Ravi. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure and joy to hear more about your work and your insights. 
Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Reflecting on today's interview, here are my three top takeaways for change makers. There are many reasons people do certain things. Food choices, for example, are influenced by so much more than just our great intentions. Context, convenience, biology. As change makers, it's important to understand the other side and not make assumptions. Enabling informed choice is not as simple as just sharing information with your audience. Decision making is influenced by what you provide, how you provide it, and when in the customer journey. Plus, the added layer of knowledge versus beliefs makes change management a very complicated process. Which means we must consider the various levers you might use to affect change. For enabling choice, the four Ps possibilities, process, persuasion, and person provide an evidence based framework to help guide your thinking. For more information about the Center for Customer Insights at the Yale School of Management and the research studies described in today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Food Lab Talk. As we close, I invite you to truly pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. Imagine, believe, and most importantly, act. See you next time.